0: Hey guys, Ed from Paranormal Rank, Ohio here, back at it again with another podcast episode. Tonight's podcast episode is about Lizzie Borden. So we all know that Lizzie Borden, (coughs) well, she was acquitted for killing her parents with not enough evidence. So I'm here to tell you the story behind all that and some of the hauntings that go on at the house to this day. The Borden murders and trial received widespread publicity throughout the United States, and along with Borden herself. They remain a topic in American popular culture to the present day. They have been depicted in numerous films, theatrical productions, literary works, and folk rhymes, and are still very well known the Fall River area. So let's go to the early life Lizzie Andrew Borden was born July 19, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. Her father, who was was of English and Welsh descent, grew up in a very modest surroundings and struggled financially as a young man. Despite being the descendant of wealthy and influential local residents, Andrew eventually prospered in the manufacture and sale of furniture and caskets then became a successful property developer. He was a director of several textile mills and owned considerable commercial property. He was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, equivalent to $9 million to this day. And in 2021, it was 9630000 in 2022. So, despite his wealth, Andrew was known for his frugality. For instance, the Borden home lacked indoor plumbing, although at the time it was a common accommodation for the wealthy. It was in an affluent area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including Andrew's cousins, generally lived in the more fashionable neighborhood, The Hill, which was farther from the industrial areas of the city. Borden and her older sister, Emma Lorraine Borden, had a relatively religious upbringing and attended Central Congregational Church. As a young woman, Lizzie was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States, She was involved in religious organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society for which she served as secretary treasurer and contemporary social movements such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She was also a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Sarah Andrew married Abby Dufresne Gray. Lizzie stated that she called her stepmother Mrs. Borden and demurred her on whether they had a cordial relationship. She believed that Abby had married her father for his wealth. Bridget Sullivan, whom they called Maggie, the Borden's 25-year-old live-in maid, who had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland, testified that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. In May of 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet believing they were attracting local children to hunt them. Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it has been commonly recounted that she was upset over his killing of them. Though the veracity of this has been disputed, a family argument in July 1892 prompted both sisters to take extended vacations in New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. Tension had been growing within the Borden family in the months before the murders, especially over Andrew's gifts of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters demanded and received a rental property, the home they had lived in until their mother died which they purchased from their father for $1 a few weeks before the murders. They sold the property back to their father for $5,000, equivalent to $151,000 in 2021. The night before the murders, John Venison Morse, the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mother, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with his brother-in-law, Andrew. Andrew. Some writers have speculated that their conversations, particularly about property transfer, may have aggravated an already tense situation. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that Mutton left on the stove to use in meals over several days was the cause. But Abby had feared poison given that Andrew had not been a popular man. Now we're going to move on to the murders, how Lizzie Borden murdered, or supposedly murdered, her parents. John Morse arrived in the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast, the next morning, at which Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, John, and the Bordens made Bridget, Maggie, Sullivan were present, Andrew and John went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 a.m., to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after 9 a.m. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor creating contusions on her nose and forehead her killer then struck her multiple times delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head killing her when Andrew returned at around 10:30 a.m. his key failed to open the door so he knocked. Sullivan went to unlock the door finding it jammed. she uttered a curse. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing. Immediately after this, she did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time, and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, to which she replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Sullivan stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into the slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap, a detail conjugated by the crime scene photos, which show Andrew wearing his boots. Sullivan then informed Lizzie of a department store sale. Lizzie said Sullivan was welcome to come along with her, but Sullivan felt unwell and went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. Sullivan testified that she she was in her third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before 1110 a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on the couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One One of his eyes had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when attacked. His still bleeding wounds suggested a very recent attack. Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived from his home across the street and pronounced both victims dead. Detectives estimated that Andrew's death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. In the investigation, Lizzie Borden's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory. Initially she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told police she had heard nothing and entered the house, not realizing that anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Sullivan and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Borden reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said that she was too calm and, and poised, despite her attitude and changing alibis. She was not checked for blood stains. Police did search her room, but it was a curious inspection at the trial. They admitted to not doing a proper search because Borden was not feeling well. They were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh, and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that on the other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. However, none of these tools were removed from the house. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew's and Abby's stomachs, removed during autopsies performed in the board and dining room, were tested for poison. None was found. Residents suspected Lizzie of purchasing hydrocentic acid, in a diluted form from the local drugstore. Her defense was that she inquired about the acid in order to clean her furs, despite the local medical examiner's testimony that it did not have antiseptic properties. Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell decided to stay with them the night following the murders. While Morse spent the night in the attic guest room, contrary to later accounts that he slept in the murder site guest room, police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th during which an officer said he had seen Borden enter the cellar with Russell, carrying a kerosene lamp and a a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone. Though he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. On August 5th, Morse left the house and was mobbed by hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house on August 6th. Police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sisters' clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head (laughs) that evening. A police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find Borden tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders. Borden appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an inquest must be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves, and it is possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behavior was erratic and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing, and then saying she was cornering around, coming down the stairs. She also said she removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, while police photographs clearly showed him still wearing his boots. The district attorney was very aggressive and confrontational on August 11th. Borden was served with a warrant and arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June of 1893. Newspaper articles noted that Borden possessed a stolid demeanor and bit her lips flushed and bent toward Attorney Adams. It was also reported that the testimony provided in the inquest had caused a change of opinion among her friends who have hereafter strongly maintained her innocence. The inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including an extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indicted on December the 2nd. So, after all that, and years to come, let's go to modern time. Now, nowadays. The house is still there. The house was rented out for a hotel room. You can go there, you can investigate the house. A lot of investigators have said that you see Mr. and Mrs. Borden walking through the halls. You can also hear what sounds like an axe hitting something or a hatchet hitting something. You can hear cries and screams. They also say you can hear Lizzie herself walking the halls and still laughing to this day. So I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's podcast. I really hope you guys did. Um, Tomorrow night at 10 p.m. we will be live on Facebook. So you can go to ParanormalInkOhio.com. There you can check out the business page. You check out our crystals and the powers that they hold. You can also check out our sage bundles for all cleansing. And the necklaces, pins, and bracelets that go with it. There you can also check out the live every Thursday and Friday night at 10 p.m. You can see some old ghost hunts and ghost stories on there. There you can go to Paranormal Wink Ohio group. There we talk about all things paranormal. And you give me ideas. I do the research. And I do a shout out for whoever does the suggestion. There you can go to Paranormal Wink Ohio on TikTok and YouTube. There you can see some ghost stories and other paranormal things. And of course, you can hear the podcast, Paranormal Inc. Ohio, on all podcasts...